Welcome to the Toowoomba Vineyard Church Podcast. We're a vineyard church plant in Toowoomba, Queensland, passionate about discovering the joy that comes from following Jesus in community. Each Sunday, we record the messages from our gatherings so you can follow along the journey from wherever you are. Stick around at the end and we'll let you know how to connect. In the meanwhile, enjoy the message. So, so we are. So, with that said, we are. Uh, we're in our fifth week, just past the halfway point in our parable series, and we're looking at the parables in Luke for a few reasons. One of them is because uh, these stories that Jesus tells—they're one of the best ways that we can get to know what the kingdom of God is like. And the thing that's really stuck out to me, like I've done this series before, I've preached many of these sermons before. But the thing that has stood out to me this time is just how passionate Jesus is about making sure that everyone is welcome in the kingdom. And so many of the parables are about helping us understand that you don't have to look and talk and be a certain way. You don't have to be, you know, on God's good side to be a part of the kingdom. In fact, it's the whole point of grace. The grace of God is it's it's almost the opposite. So we learn that about God's kingdom. But the other thing that I think we've been really trying to push into is learning, kind of unlearning the way that we've been taught to read the Bible for a long time in church and learning a different way. You know, we have been taught for so long that the idea of a parable, it's a a moral platitude, it's a moral lesson. So you you read the parable, you figure out what the point of the parable is, and then you can move on because now you understand it. Whereas... The point of parables is, is not that you just get the message and, you know, it's not like getting the orange and squeezing the juice out and chucking the rest away. The idea of a parable and the reason we have the Rubik's Cube on the previous slide is it's a parable is like a puzzle that Jesus gives us to, to play with and figure out and look at it different ways. And something I love about a Rubik's Cube, maybe, Jen, can you put it up for just another second? Something I love about a Rubik's Cube is that if you turn it around and look at it the other way, you have a different puzzle. And so this is kind of the working analogy we have for what a parable is. Another example I thought of was it's a bit like imagine you're walking through a field, not in Australia because we don't have uh, you know, ancient Roman coins, but let's say you're walking in a field, you find an ancient Roman coin, and you're like, oh, and you, you, know, you know something about history and you go, wow, this is an extremely valuable coin. Like this would sell for tens of thousands of dollars to a museum or a private collector. And so you, you go, oh my goodness, I've, I've got this coin. And you walk away, you forget where the field is, not realizing that there's an ancient treasury buried under the ground. And so I think reading a parable and just trying to get the, the moral message out of it, it's a bit like finding the coin and, you know, and, and disappearing off and and thinking nothing more of it. Whereas if you start to dig, you'll discover there's more and more. And the deeper you, like, like I said before, I've preached this parable that we're about to, to talk about probably three or four times. And I feel like this time I've, got, I've come to a completely different conclusion about what it's saying to me in this moment. And so they're these wonderful stories that we get to dig into, wrestle with together. So what are some practical ways that we actually do that? How do we sit with a parable or one of these scriptures um, that we find in the Gospels? Well, the first thing is it's really good to think about the context. So whenever you come across one of these parables, read a few verses before and find out what Jesus is doing. Like who's he responding to? They're usually given in response to particular situations. 
consider the different perspectives. So something we've learned, particularly that I think Jen drew out really well, is that don't just identify with the person that's easiest for you to identify with. Put yourself in the shoes of the different people in the parable and think about it from their perspective. And then try and put it into your, your own context. Try and think about what that could mean for your life and be honest. Because what you might discover is that while you might uh, you know, identify one person in the parable, when you think about it, you'll realize you actually have a lot to learn from another. And then the last thing is, which is just totally foreign to us as Westerners, but what I would encourage you to do is um, look for the things that don't make sense in the parable or the things that are jarring or weird. Like if you're reading the parable of the sower, notice that why is God sowing in the rocks in the first place? They're these uncomfortable things that we come across in the parables and you go, you know, that doesn't really make sense. Why would God do that? And rather than glossing over it and trying to explain it away, actually lean in and go, I wonder why that is. And you'll find find when you don't try and explain away things that you actually find a whole new level of depth. So today we are going to go through, if you've been around church for a long time, this might be very familiar to you. Um, This might be brand new for you, and that's okay too. But we're going through the parable of the prodigal son. And what I want to do is I want we'll read this, the passage in a moment. I'm going to read it from a slightly different translation to what you might have heard before. This is the, called the Kingdom New Testament. It's a translation uh, by a very well-regarded scholar called N.T. Wright. Um, and some of the things that he says I think are really helpful. Uh, but we're going to read through it. And I want to kind of step us through each of the parts of the parable. And hopefully you'll notice some things that maybe you haven't noticed before. Or you'll find significance in some things that you haven't come across before. Uh, And as we do that, hopefully that'll be a good illustration for you that there's always more. There's always more to find and unearth in the scriptures. There's always more treasure buried underneath the coin on the surface. So if you have a Bible handy, we're going to open up to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible handy, you're very welcome to just uh, listen as well. That's totally fine. So we're going to start from verse 1. We're going to read the first three verses. Then we're going to be really naughty and we're going to skip ahead over a whole lot of verses. Outrageous. Uh, and then we're going to chat about it. So starting from verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming close to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees and the legal experts were grumbling. This fellow welcomes sinners, they said. He even eats with them. Outrageous. Now, we're going to be outrageous. We're going to skip along. There's there's two more parables that Jesus tells. He tells the parable of the lost sheep. He tells the parable of the lost coin. If you don't know them, I'd encourage you to give them a read uh, when you go home or during the week. But we're going to skip to the third of three parables that Jesus tells in response to this situation with the tax collectors and the sinners. So starting, picking up verse 11, Jesus went on. Once there was a man who had two sons. The youngest son said to the father, Father, give me my share in the property. So he divided up his livelihood between them. Not many days later, the younger son turned his share into cash and set off for a country far away where he spent his share in having a riotous good time. When he'd spent it all, a severe famine came on that country And he found himself destitute. So he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. 
He longed to satisfy his hunger with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. He came to his senses. Just think, he said to himself. There are all my father's hired hands with plenty to eat, and here am I starving to death. I shall get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. Make me like one of your hired hands. And he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, with his, uh, his father saw him, and his heart was stirred with love and pity. He ran to him, hugged him tight, and kissed him. Father, the son began, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. But the father said to his servants, Hurry, bring the best clothes and put them on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the calf that I fattened up, kill it, and let's eat and have a party. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. And that's the end of the parable. No, it's not. It keeps going. The older son was out in the fields. When he came home and got near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother's come home, he said, and your father has thrown a great party. He's killed the fattened calf because he's got him back safe and well. He flew into a rage and wouldn't go in. Then his father came out and pleaded with him. Look here, said his father. I've been, um, the son said to his father, I've been slaving for you all these years. I've never disobeyed a single commandment of yours. And you never even gave me a young goat so I could have a party with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, once he's finished gobbling up your livelihood with his whores, he, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, he replied, you're always with me. Everything I have belongs to you. But we had to celebrate and be happy. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And that's where the parable ends. So something I find really interesting about this parable, and particularly if you've been around you know, Christian circles, you've read the Bible before, is that we call this the parable of the prodigal son. And it's, there's certainly a prodigal son involved. In fact, one of the key characters is this prodigal son. But the parable opens right at the beginning by talking about these two sons. And if you read back to verses 1 to 3, we've got two groups of people that Jesus is addressing. There's the sinners and tax collectors, and then there's the Pharisees. And so I wonder whether it would be better to call this parable the parable of the two sons. Because we so often, I think, get to the end of that first narrative and stop and forget that the second half is there because it's kind of uncomfortable and weird. So we're going to go through... Um, both of these two storylines, one by one, and we're going to kind of dig deep and just do a bit of digging to see what we can find. So the parable opens uh, with a conversation between the youngest son and the father. And the youngest son says to his father, I want out of this family, uh, of this business, of this nation. I want my inheritance now. And so, and I want to get out of here. Now, one of the things I like about the Kingdom New Testament version is it it picks up that the assets, the the father's wealth wouldn't necessarily have been a pile of cash, you know, buried in a treasure chest out the back. It probably would have been assets. It would have been 
uh, property, it would have been cattle, it would have been a business. And so in order for the father to fulfill this, he actually had to go and sell those things. Like it wasn't just, oh, well, here's your half of the cash. It would have required quite a bit of time and energy from the father to do that. Add to that the fact that um, this request is absolutely unheard of uh, in ancient Jewish culture. If you were to have a read through Deuteronomy 21, there's actually a passage of the, the Israelite law that talks about what to do with a rebellious son. And this, this request from the son, just asking this of the father would have been enough, according to their law, for the son to be taken out and stoned. Like it's absolutely unheard of in this society. And so something, something that I think we sometimes miss is the fact that the father grants this request is extraordinary. It's highly unusual. And the people listening to Jesus would have been shocked. The idea of kind of like cashing out and going traveling is not, particularly if you're a millennial, is not that unusual. Like kind of, you know, cashing in the life savings, getting a big loan from mum and dad, and then going out traveling is like, that's not unheard of, right? You know, there's, there's, a, bit of a, there's a bit of a precedent for that in our culture in this day and age. But what the son is doing here is a little bit different to this. Because not only is he, is he rejecting his family, but he's also rejecting his people. We have a very individualist culture, so it's hard for us to understand what a, what a shaming exercise this would have been, not just to the family, but also to the whole nation. And so he's turning his back on his people, his God, everything that he knows, and he goes to a foreign nation. So that idea of him going to a foreign nation is really important. So he goes traveling, he bandages people, he lives it up, and then the circumstances change. So no longer is, uh, you know, the weather is the farming conditions favorable to him, but suddenly there's a famine. And so the resources become very scarce. So whereas he might have been able to get by, otherwise the famine comes, the circumstances change, and this son finds himself feeding pigs, which, you know, that, there's no shame on farmers. Here. We're not trying to say if, if that's part of your job, that's a bad thing, right? The thing that we're supposed to pick up here is that pigs were considered to be unclean in their culture. And so by feeding pigs, it wasn't just a lowly job, but it was actually a position of intense, intense shame. And so the overwhelming sense here uh, is not of his unfortunate position, but his shame. And that's what this son would have been experiencing in this low moment. So the son decides to come back. He crafts a speech. Did you notice that there's this little speech that gets pre-prepared? So he pre-prepares the speech. He goes back home and he starts telling the speech, but he only gets halfway through before the son says, the, the father says, I want you to stop. The father runs out to meet him on the road. The father stops his mid-speech and says, we're having a party because you're home. There's a few things that, again, that I think we miss being, uh, you know, of the Western kind of influence that we miss about uh, this. So first of all, the father running, the father runs out to greet him. That was a very undignified act. If you're a well-to-do Israelite citizen, you had slaves, you had servants, you had people who would do all of the running for you. And so you didn't have to run. And so that's a very undignified act. The father gives... The, the son a ring and we 
rings sometimes have meaning in our society. They have a very different meaning in ancient society where, and it's not certain, but it's likely that this would have been a signet ring, which was basically the same as a signature. And so by giving the son a ring, it was basically saying, I'm giving you authority, the authority of the family, authority over the wealth, over financial transactions, which given his history is an interesting move. He gives the son a robe, which you can imagine, you know, having fed pigs for a little while and having no money to buy new clothes, he was probably pretty unkempt. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture of uh, which we it's in portrait, so we can't get the whole thing on. We're gonna, by the way, we're gonna get a projector at some point so we can use this screen so you guys can see this stuff much better. Um, but hopefully that that will do. But the, this is um, Rembrandt's take on the return of the lost son. And so you have the father there um, embracing his son. You have the older brother whose head's kind of cut off here because he's a bit rude, so we just cropped him out. Um, but you can see how ragged and disheveled the son looks in this. And I think this, this beautifully captures some of the emotion and some of the reality of, of what this situation would have been like. And so the father gives his son a robe, which is like a restoration of dignity. And it kind of undoes that shame, doesn't it? Uh, he gives his son a pair of sandals. And this is just my take. This, is, this isn't biblical fact. But my take is that the sandals are almost like, he, you know, he, he may well have come back with, with no shoes on. And so the sandals are almost like the father saying, I trust you to come and go. Like, if you want to go out again, here are some sandals. I, I'm going to give you that trust back. And then finally, the fattened calf, it's a bit like pulling out the grange. So for, for any of you wine drinkers, uh, it's a bit like pulling. It's the, it's the animal that would have been set aside, fed extra, would have been looked after. It's kind of like cellaring a bottle of wine. Would have been looked after for a special occasion. And so this would have come at considerable cost and extravagance. And, you know, all of these, all of these things are, are really strange because the father's lost half of his wealth and livelihood to his son. And yet on his return, instead of being, uh, you know, okay, we're just going to have a very, very small, we're just going to go to Macca's for like a, you know, a happy meal. He's, he's pulling out all the stops and putting out a banquet, despite all that his son has cost him. It's a beautiful story of redemption, of the father's unconditional welcome back. But I wonder if you notice that there's something deeply wrong, or at least to our sensibilities, there's something deeply wrong about this story. Why did the son come home? What was his motivation? Was it because he had a heart change, realized the error of his ways, and wanted to be restored to the family? No, it wasn't. The reason the son came home is because he needed to. He had nowhere else to go. He had this moment of realization that he is here feeding pigs and he would actually be better off being a servant in his father's household than, than where he was. And so his plan wasn't to go back and be restored to the family. His heart hadn't suddenly re, you know, had this massive change. He just, he just needed something to eat. He just had a practical need. He was at his lowest point. And he just needed a change of circumstances. And that's why he came back. It's kind of scandalous, if you think about it, that despite this son's 
you know, imperfect intentions, he was welcomed back as a son. Like, it's not actually fair, is it? It's scandalous. I think we have this idea sometimes that if we're going to come back to God, if we're going to come to God, we have to have pure motives. Now, don't get me wrong. It's great when we have that heart change, that that heart of repentance. But the point of this is God wants to welcome you back. The Father wants to meet you on the road and welcome you back, regardless of your intentions. If you are coming back to him for no other reason than to pray and ask for something that you need practically, he will meet you on the road. He'll take you back anyway. And so there's kind of two things I want to draw out of this. The first is I want to let you know that if you identify with the prodigal son in this story, that there is an invitation for you right now to come home to your father. And it doesn't matter whether you have been convicted and, you know, you've had this encounter with the Holy Spirit and, you know, God, you feel like God's leading you home by the hand. Or if you're just desperate and you've got nowhere else to go. The invitation is there for you right in this moment to come back, to come back home. And the Father is waiting for you. He's looking out for you. He's so excited to see your face from the distance and welcome you home. And so if that's you, then make that decision now. You don't have to say a special prayer. You don't have to um, you know, sign up to be a member of the church or join our mailing list um, to, to make that action. You just have to say in your heart, Father, I'm coming home. And that's enough. He'll meet you there. He'll meet you out on the road. But the second thing is, you know, I I think sometimes we we think that faith, a decision to follow Jesus is something that we make once and then we just, you know, on we go. Can you imagine if we treated marriages like that or or friendships like that? When Jen and I were married, I had the opportunity to speak at our wedding, which is customary. Um, But we had a room full of people that we know and love, many of who are not part of the church or are not Christians. And so I kind of had this opportunity to say, I just wanted to say something very short and very simple. I had this opportunity to say something profound to a whole bunch of people that would probably never otherwise hear, um, you know, the the message of love, of God's love. And I didn't want to preach at people because that's not really my style. And so I thought very hard about what I wanted to share. And so the speech I gave at our wedding, I said, essentially boiled down to, you know, love is not a feeling. Love is not um, a fuzzy, warm feeling that you, you get inside when you look at someone you love or, you know, when you look at your child or you look at your friend um, who you care for. Love is not that feeling. Love is actually a decision. And love is a decision that you make every day, every morning when you wake up. Um, in my marriage to Jen, every morning uh, we, we hop up and I decide that, I'm going to remain committed to this thing. It's not a decision I made back then. It's a decision I make every day. And I think faith is exactly the same as that. I think that if, if we decide to follow Jesus, we actually need to get up every morning and make that decision. And so if you have been doing church faith for 50 years, then this still applies to you exactly the same as it does to someone who's coming home for the first time. You know, I think so often in faith, we kind of, we have great moments. We'll go to a conference, um, you know, Jen will preach a great talk on a Sunday and we get really excited and then we kind of get on fire with our faith for a little bit and then it kind of dwindles down. And I think sometimes we, ha- we feel like we have to wait to have the perfect motivation to come back to God. We need to have that experience again. But you can decide in this moment 
to, to turn back to God and to make him the center of your life again. And in fact, I would say we have to make that decision every day. And so the other, the other lesson I want to draw out of this is I think this, is, I think this um, story of the prodigal son, I think this is actually a daily experience uh, of, of part of following Jesus. And so if you have been kind of a Christian, maybe for a long time, maybe for a little while, and you just feel like you need to say yes to Jesus again as part of that discipline, then I want to encourage you to do that too. All right, let's briefly look at the, the other narrative which is going on here because I think so often we stop there with this parable and just make it about the prodigal son, but it's the parable of the two sons. I think it's really easy for us to identify with the younger son. And like I said before, it's good to do that. But it's also easy to distance ourselves from the older son because, to be honest, in the story, he comes across as a bit of a jerk. And so we don't want to identify with the bad guy in the story. And so we just go, well, I'm not like that, so it's fine. But I want to encourage us to just sit in the uncomfortable place for a moment with this. What is it that makes the oldest son upset in this story? Like, what actually is his beef? Well, what he says is that, first of all, he says, I've been slaving away for you, my father. You know, working on the property. Maybe he was feeding pigs too. We don't know. Um, But I've been slaving uh, for you, my father. I've never disobeyed you. And so in some ways, I want to suggest that actually this situation that the older brother in is actually very unfair. And in some ways, he has every right to be upset. Because if you're the son that stayed, if you're the one that's actually remained committed and faithful to your father, um, to your work, to your inheritance, then you have every right to be upset when your son literally, literally takes half the business, you know, possibly almost ruins it, then comes back expecting to be reinstated. Like, it is unfair, isn't it? Objectively. And so I think when we put ourselves in this, this older son's shoes, if we let ourselves actually see his perspective, we realize that he, ha- he has a valid point here. The problem with the, the older son is not that it's unfair and that he gets upset. I think the problem um, is that he misunderstands what inheritance is. You see, he thinks that he could. In- he thinks that by being faithful, by working on the farm, that he's earning his inheritance. But that's not how inheritance works. Inheritance is a birthright. You get it for free. You get it just by being born. And so the problem is the older son thinks that he's earning it, but actually he gets it just by being a son. And so the, the way this parable ends, I think, is really interesting because the father says to the son, I am always with you and everything I have is yours. What a profound statement for a father to make, right? I've actually intentionally said this to David a few times just to see how he'll, he'll respond. And he, I mean, he responds exactly how you'd expect a four-year-old to respond. It's very sweet. But what a profound thing for our God to say to us. I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. You know, the inheritance that we gain in the kingdom, we don't, gain by working hard for the kingdom. It's great to work hard for the kingdom. It's strongly encouraged. It's a natural response to the goodness of God, but it's not how our inheritance 
comes, our inheritance comes through our birthright just of saying yes to Jesus. He shares with us his sonship and we get to be a part of his kingdom. We get the inheritance before we do anything else. Isn't that profound? And so it's interesting. So the father says this profound thing to his son. And so how does his son respond? We don't know. That's where the story ends. So we don't actually find out what the response is. And I think that's Jesus' very, very sneaky way of inviting us um, to work out for ourselves. Where, where do we put our trust? Where do we put our, our belief and our inheritance? Do we put it in the work that we do for the kingdom, for the ministry, for the way we serve at church, uh, for the way we serve outside of the church? Or do we put it in the fact that Jesus died for us, he loves us, and that, that's his sonship is our sonship. And so the inheritance now is our birthright as people who follow Jesus. And so the, the cliffhanger invites us to say, well, how do you respond? Where do you put your trust? And, um, and I think when we change our perspective on that, when we see the prodigal son coming home, when we see the, the thief on the cross, uh, when we see people come to church who just really, like morally, shouldn't be at church, and yet they're welcomed in. It just changes everything when we change that perspective, doesn't it? Your inheritance in the kingdom is not what you do. It's your birthright. I want to finish by just sharing one application of this because it's always good to apply it to our own situation. Um, and there are so many ways that we could take this um, and things that we could do. But, so I want to actually do quite a narrow, like just one very specific thing that I feel like God might want to say to us as a community. Um, so, so this isn't, like I said, the only application. This is just one thing I think we could take away. People have said to me since Jen and I moved to Toowoomba that the largest church in this town is people who don't go to church. Which, you know, I think people often say that in jest, but I think having met a lot of people in Toowoomba now, I think that's probably true. Um, and there are all sorts of reasons for that. So um, there are heaps of reasons why people decide to stay, stay committed to their faith, but um, to leave the church. And you know what? To be really honest, having met a lot of these people, a lot of people have very good reasons for not being part of the church. And it's really easy, particularly when you're a committed member of a church, it's really easy to kind of look at people um, who don't go to church in, in judgment, if we're honest, to look at them in judgment and go, well, if you're a Christian, you should be part of a church because that's part of the deal. If you read the Bible, it's pretty clear about that. So easy to do that. But like I said, many of these people actually have very good reasons for that. And they have experiences um, that have led to that. Now, for some bizarre reason that we can't still work out, Jen and I seem to minister best to people who have had bad experiences with churches in the past. It just seems to be our thing is that we kind of naturally draw those kind of people in. Um, and if you chat to anyone who's an expert on church planning, they will say the worst people to have in a church plant are people who come with lots of baggage. And yet, here we are. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, you know, Jen and I, um, unfortunately, we know what it's like to be hurt by church and to have a negative experience. And so for us, I feel like God has almost given us this grace to welcome in people who've had negative experiences, who've been burned in the past, um, and to, to help people find the healing uh, that they need. And it, it bring, there's almost nothing that brings me more joy than hearing someone, dis, dis, or hearing someone share that they've rediscovered the joy of following Jesus. 
in community. It's just, it's like my heart cry. It just, it undoes me every time when I hear those stories. Now, there are a lot, like I said before, there are lots of reasons why, the, why people leave church. But there's one in particular that I think this parable really helps um, undo. And I think one of the problems is that when people come to church, we don't treat them the way that the father treats the prodigal son. I think we actually take on the attitude of the older brother instead. Now, there's this really simple uh, way that we love to talk about it, um, and I've got a slide for it. I think the default mode of church, and no one would say this from the front, but I think the way that in churches we tend to do things by default is that when someone comes along, someone shows some kind of interest in being a part of a church, the first thing we do is we look at their behaviour. Are they living the way that a Christian is supposed to live? And then if they are, if they pass that check, then we go, okay, do you have a real faith in God? You know, are you committed? Are you, are, you know, have you said the prayer? And then if you pass those two, then you get to be a part of our church community. And if you, if you don't behave and you don't believe, we'll let you come to church, but we're not going to treat you the same as we treat other people. We're going to give you a very conditional kind of a welcome. Now, like I said, I don't think there is a single leader or pastor that would say that this is a good idea, but I think this is actually how a lot of churches operate. And I think we have to be very, very careful of the way that we welcome people when they come and visit, particularly if they don't have a faith yet, um, particularly if they're living in a way that we don't necessarily agree with. I want to suggest that what the Father models to us here is actually very different. That How useful is the scribble, by the way? <laughs> that actually, we, when we welcome someone, it would be un, actually unconditional, that we would genuinely welcome someone in the way that they are, do you think that the father had forgotten what the son did? I don't think so either. I think the fa- And you know what? I suspect, we don't find out in the story, but I suspect that there was a conversation that needed to be had. But what the father realized is that the thing that needed to happen first was the celebration, the, the joy of the son coming home, and then the conversations could happen next. And so when people come to visit us, would we allow them to belong? And then as they, as they come to faith, we celebrate that. And then as the Holy Spirit convicts us, as the Holy Spirit convicts them, as we build trust, then people can start to live differently as a result of that. We should never, ever, as a church, coerce people into behaving a certain way. It's so unhealthy. It has to go this way. It's so important. So important. We have uh, a very dear friend of ours uh, in Sydney who started coming to our church back there when uh, he was maybe 18. No, it would have been like late in, in the youth group days, so towards the end of school. He was dating a girl in the church as a Christian. He's not a Christian, but he just decided to start coming to church because he figured, you know, I'm in a serious relationship. It would be good to figure out what, you know, what my girlfriend believes. And you know how long he came to church before he became a Christian? Five years. He came for five years. He joined in with our dinners. He came to small groups. Um, we even got him up the, the front to speak and share, like do a communion talk because we wanted his perspective. Like he was fascinated by Christianity, but he wasn't ready to, to, make, to do the believe bit yet. And so we let him belong for five years. 
And he is honestly the most beautiful, mature Christian in so many ways. He really challenges me in the way that he does his faith because I think there's a depth of maturity that he developed as part of that experience that I just I haven't seen in many other people. And so my invitation to us as a church, I made an invitation to us as individuals, but my invitation to us as a church is would we be, would we be willing to actually do it this way around where people can belong we don't expect anything of, of them. We don't expect them to, you know, we don't give them a four-week window to become a Christian. We don't give them a six-week window to start, you know, to cut off all of the unhealthy relationships in their lives and move on. We actually genuinely welcome people. We invite them to discover the joy of following Jesus. And then we let the Holy Spirit um, lead that journey of becoming more like Jesus in the right timing, in the right way. So that's my invitation to us. We willing to have a go at that? You know what? To be honest, I think we already do it reasonably well. There's always more to learn. So why do we stand? Let's invite the Holy Spirit and let's just have a little bit of a time of ministry. Awesome. So what we're going to do here, just by way of explanation, um, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come, to come. We believe that, not that he's not already here, but when we open our, when we invite the Spirit, we're actually more opening ourselves. Uh, we love to say Holy Spirit come. It's a vineyard thing. It's been around forever. And we're just going to wait for like an uncomfortably long amount of time. There's not going to be an emotional piano going in the background. The kids are going to be doing their thing. We're just going to wait. We're going to listen together to see what God's doing. While we're doing that, I just encourage you to pay attention to your feelings, uh, to your thoughts, Um, To your emotions, they're kind of the same. You know what I mean. Uh, Just pay attention. Listen out and see if God wants to speak to you in this moment. I'm going to do the same. And it's not like I have a direct line to God. It's not like when you become a pastor, you get an app on your phone that lets you get a straight download from God. That's not how it works. I'm I'm just kind of doing my best to see whether maybe God has something to say for all of us. Um, and then we're going to, I have no plan. We're just going to see what God wants to do and hand this time over to him to minister to us. And you know what? If you feel like you have something really strongly that you feel like God wants to share with everyone, go and talk to Jen or come and speak to me because we want to give everyone a chance um, to be part of this time. Everyone gets to play. So with that explanation done, let's take a moment to wait for God. Holy Spirit, come. You did it. Good on you. If you want more where that came from, search out Toowoomba Vineyard Church wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or at tvc.org.au. Don't be a stranger. We'd love to connect. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace to you wherever you are.